Welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights here at the University of Cambridge. My name is Scott Novak, and I'll be your host on today's show. This episode, we're talking about the right to privacy and how to protect it in an age of counterterrorism and government surveillance. In 2013, this debate became mainstream when The Guardian published the revelations of Edward Snowden, a former NSA contractor turned whistleblower, revealing a web of indiscriminate mass surveillance in the United States and Britain. Joining me in our recording studio are two of our regular CGHR panelists, Talia Zibitz and Max Curtis. And our special guest this week is Claire Lauterbach, a research officer at the London-based charity Privacy International. Privacy International investigates the secret world of government surveillance and exposes the companies enabling it, with partner organizations across the world engaged in developing a global network of leaders on privacy. Claire, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what does Privacy International do? Well, Privacy International is a charity engaged in a variety of strategies to try and protect the right to privacy, uh, both in the UK and internationally. So for that reason, I have colleagues who are lawyers who engage in strategic litigation within the UK primarily. But for myself, I'm, uh, I had the research and investigations team at PI, which is primarily engaged in in-depth investigation into uh, surveillance issues in different countries, but as well on other topics that relate to the right to privacy, including the use of our data and how our data is being collected and retained, for example. Mm. With your work at Privacy International, do you view privacy as a human right? We do. We, we do view it as a human right. And I believe that that's also how the international community, at least on paper, views it. Um, it is actually a, a right that is enshrined in the UN Declaration of Human Rights and is an, a right enshrined at the European level in the European Convention of Human Rights, Article 8, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it is viewed as a human right. But unlike a number of other rights, including the right to be free from torture and cruel and human and degrading treatment, privacy is not considered, I believe, in any jurisdiction to be a an absolute right. It is a right that we also do recognize that Privacy International is a right that can be under certain circumstances and within the rule of law abrogated for in the interests in a, in a number of interests. But we do see it as a human right, yes. From the UN Declaration of Human Rights, it says no one shall be subjected to arbitrary interference with his privacy, family, home or correspondence. But as you mentioned, because that's not a legally binding resolution, that's not always how it happens in practice. So I want to ask, in what ways do you find are the most common ways for states to violate privacy rights of its citizens? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because the, the key word that you read out there is arbitrary. It, it says that nobody shall be subjected to arbitrary interference, which provides a measure of flexibility in what constitutes arbitrary surveillance. Um, so we've seen, as you mentioned in the introduction, we, we've seen with the revelations that were came out of the Edward Snowden files that there has been a mass collection of people's data. And so we would consider that to be arbitrary because it's it's basically reasonless suspicion and collection of of data uh, of citizens who are under no you know under no particular suspicion of having done anything wrong and so the ways in which governments in particular if that was your question are are collecting data i mean vary um with the UK's passing of the investigatory powers act we've seen the number of agencies who will now have access to what we're calling internet connection records, ballooning, uh, the usual suspects of the National Crime Agency and GCHQ and, and various branches of the police forces, but also 
the pensions and work office, um, mm-hmm. various local authorities as well could potentially have access to to some of the data that's being collected and retained under these new regimes. And so that's just one example of how expansive these surveillance and collection powers are becoming. And what interests me about looking at the right to privacy within a human rights framework is that it's not only the right to privacy that it affects. I think that you can make the case that things like right to freedom of expression, right to freedom of religion would be interfered with if you knew as a citizen that your correspondence and your private communications were being interfered with. And I think this is picked up quite nicely by the UN Human Rights Council, which recently established a special rapporteur on the right to privacy in light of this data about that we're learning about mass surveillance from the Edwin Snowden revelations. And I'll quote what the UN Human Rights Council say about this. They talk about the negative impact that surveillance and or interception of communications can have when carried out on a mass scale on the exercise and enjoyment of human rights in general. So they talk about the exercise and enjoyment of other human rights and the interrelationship between the right to privacy and your knowledge and confidence in expressing your other the human rights in a democratic society. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's a really good point, Talia. And I was thinking of the Muslim surveillance that was going on by the New York Police Department. For It continued, I think, for 10 years, starting with Bush and ending under the Obama administration, where Muslims in New York were just arbitrarily followed and surveilled. And like they set people up to follow them to their mosques. Their, I believe their internet and cell phones were sometimes investigated. And all this, of course, was under the justification of, oh, there's the threat of terrorists from the Muslim community coming, and that's a security threat. So that needs to be monitored. So this is not arbitrary. But that program found zero terrorist connections throughout its, you know, I don't know how much it costs, probably millions of dollars to conduct all that surveillance, zero connections. Um, And I'm looking at an American Civil Liberties Union report on this operation by the New York Police Department right now. And one of the effects that it talks about is how it damaged law enforcement relationships with the Muslim community. So not only what you were talking about, Scott, and what I mentioned about the interrelationship with other human rights, but I think it's really interesting to consider what Claire said about arbitrary interference. And it does seem to be in this case that there are no significant gains in national security because of this violation of the right to privacy. And there, once again, you have this careful balance and walking this tightrope between national security concerns, legitimate ways to protect your population against Mm. things like terrorism, and whether violating people's privacy and searching through their data is actually going to give you an effective way of combating these issues. So one of the biggest examples, as we've mentioned before, of the violation of privacy rights has been this Edward Snowden scandal and the revelations that that revealed. Can you give us a quick summary of what happened in that case and then any work Privacy International has done in collaboration with governments to kind of spread awareness about why these programs are problematic? Broadly speaking, um, there there were dozens upon dozens of of programs that were revealed through the disclosure of of those files from Edward Snowden. And it's important to note, I think people forget this in the controversy over is Edward Snowden a hero or did Mm -hmm. he endanger national security, is that he didn't himself curate what he wanted to put out. It was actually um, entrusted to the journalists that were covering it primarily the Guardian and then the other um, news agencies that, that ended up running with various stories because of the idea that journalists would, would reveal what was necessary to reveal in the interest of the public and guided by journalistic public uh, uh, interest ideals, because there were things that were not published that were deemed to be too damaging to national security. But that's just an aside. 
Some of the programs, I mean, the, there were programs about hardware hacking, for example. There were divide, there were programs that were revealed that were about a sort of keyword search programs or search programs that could, you know, use various box ticking exercises to sort of find a way in which this this person that you wanted to look at wasn't considered to be American because, of course, what kind of data you can collect about an American citizen under American law is different from what you can collect about a non-American citizen. Mm -hmm. And so there were, you know, various programs showing how that was being manipulated and abused, and the collaboration between NSA and GCHQ on various uh, efforts to exchange data about each other's citizens, which um, in order to get around domestic mm -hmm. uh, legal safeguards that those governments had in relation to protecting their own citizens. But to answer your question about how Privacy International is engaged with this, you asked, do we work with governments to, to sort of um, show them, you know, maybe the error of their ways. We don't really directly work with, with governments because in a sense, um, it's difficult to, for us to justify this kind of mass collection as a principle. Um, so we don't, we don't collaborate with governments to try and come up with better policies. But what mm -hmm. we have done is we have done a lot of public sensitization. We've also done a lot of strategic litigation, mm -hmm. so to challenge some of these provisions at least um, UK provisions in the Investigatory Powers Tribunal, which is the forum for hearing complaints against the um, the intelligence services in the UK, for example. And that is the kind of activity that we're engaged with. So obviously the technology that governments use to surveil populations has grown increasingly sophisticated. And so in what ways have we witnessed technology changing the terms of this security versus privacy debate? The thing is that a lot of our conceptions of privacy as a human right were created decades before the invention of the internet. And the issue is when you're dealing with the relationship between privacy and security, the internet sort of necessarily as a result of its structure in many ways, leans you in favor of violating privacy in the names of security. It's simply almost too easy to violate privacy. And so you end up with a lot of government agencies that are, you give, you give yourself the benefit of the doubt. It's easier to, to violate privacy and then beg for forgiveness later than it is to, on the first hand, figure out if and when you should violate these rights. Nevertheless, in the wake of Snowden, technology isn't necessarily always in opposition to privacy. There are ways in which people can use technology to, I think, protect their privacy in ways that you may not have been able to, you know, even a couple of years ago, let alone decades ago. For instance, um, I've done a lot of research uh, about Estonia, and Estonia's got a really interesting government program. So if you want to pay your taxes, or you want to vote, or you want to sign your kids up to school, basically anything that involves your relationship with the government, you can use a government app. If you get stopped by the police, you give them your phone because that's where your ID is. If you want to go to the polls, you don't have to go to the polls because you can just sit in your living room and do that from there. So one of the interesting things there is Estonia is very concerned with privacy questions because obviously the government has quite a lot of power there. In Estonia, you can check and see who has accessed your information or changed your data and who hasn't. So there was recently a case where I think a government minister uh, tried to like find the health records of someone who was in opposition to him. And on the one hand, this technology made it fairly easy for him to actually access that person's health records. On the other hand, that person was immediately able to tell that his records had been accessed. And so that government minister, you may be surprised to know, is no longer in government. That's interesting. And I think the the scary part, at least from like 
my American perspective of the emphasis on individual rights and the rights to your property and papers that are expressed in the Constitution. There's so much potential for abuse there. So on the flip side of your example, then, I, had, I, I recently read about an example from South Africa, where for many years, actually, they've been distributing their social welfare to people through these cards where they insert the cards, the data is on the cards. And it's especially been useful in rural areas where they don't have the government infrastructure to efficiently hand out welfare, where what they've done is to put these like the cash on the trucks, drive them out to the rural areas, and then the people will like stick their cards in the truck and get their money. And that's how they distribute welfare. And now there's been this movement for a number of years by the government to create basically like a national identity card, but operates across a number of platforms. So they have like your identity, they're supposed to be synced with the police department, the court system, but also for shops and what you've bought and your credit history. So it's like this all-in-one super efficient card. Uh, uh, do you know anything about this program? Not particularly about yeah. South Africa. Okay. However, there are a number of countries in which we do have partner organizations who are active on identity card mm -hmm. issues in particular. And uh, two notable examples, I would say, where this has come out. One is in India with the so-called Aadhaar um, program, which is uh, essentially a national ID register. Technically, they couldn't legally make it a requirement for you to have the card in order for you to access certain kinds of government services, but that increasingly it is it is something that's being rolled out on a mm. massive scale and many people are signing up to, to Adhar to receive this card because it makes it so much easier to access various kinds of government services. And of course, India has, a, has an enormous population and a great deal of income inequality. And so it does to a certain logic makes sense that in order to access uh, populations that uh, maybe aren't particularly mobile, um, don't come to uh, urban centers very often, uh, and it does make some sense. And that is why the government has put a lot of its resources into this Adhar scheme. The issue, so, so far so good, you might say, but mm -hmm. the issue that you know troubles privacy activists and, and people who are concerned about equality issues as well is the lack of transparency about what is actually being done with that data. So there's various questions here. One is security, because once you build a database, there's, you know, there's an incentive to hack it. So mm -hmm. the question is, how secure is that data? Is it, is it actually being kept in a, in a responsible way? And who are the authorities who are responsible for securing that data? How do we know that they are actually investing in securing it? That's uh, some of the research that one of my colleagues is doing. And the other issue is that there are a number of add-on services that are using the Adhar data. It's a, a program called India Stack, basically a set of services and, and data services that, that use Adhar data. And the question of who is using this, you know, what kinds of private companies are getting access to this? Are they going to be able to see healthcare data? Are they going to be able to see um, data related to your um, genealogy, your parents, your fingerprints, your biometrics? Because remember you can't really change your fingerprints. So once that data gets shared, that's data that's been shared. So the other yeah. example I would talk about is in neighboring Pakistan, where they have one of the largest biometric identity card systems um, in the world. It's, it's actually there. It's a legal requirement. Every Pakistani citizen over the age of 18 is required to have a biometric identity card. And that has been widely... Um, you know, touted and, and justified um, as a counterterrorism um, mm. initiative. So if we know who everyone is, we will 
be able to find the terrorists, re, you know, yeah. re, read out the bad apples. And one does sort of understand the logic there, given that Pakistan has a, a serious problem with, with domestic terrorism and attacks in the country. However, we have seen evidence and our partner there, which is, uh, we have two partners there, but one of our partners there, uh, the Digital Rights Foundation, has um, done some research into the abuse of those ID card systems and shown that it is pretty easy to actually falsify your identity to to get people to sign up to sort of this black market trade in, in this kind of uh, identity. And that's particularly concerning. So the question is, who's keeping the data and why is the, are the primary concerns that people should be having when we're looking at these ID card systems instead of just sort of accepting that it's going to make things more efficient and secure for mm-hmm. people? I wanted to ask Claire and the panel more widely, if we're talking about abuse of these databases as one of the major challenges to the right to privacy in the 21st century, what is the major threat of this abuse? Is it coming more from private corporations and their access? Claire, you mentioned a black market trade in data. Or is it coming from government and their access to privacy surveillance? Because I think people have two very different conceptions of who owns their data, private companies on the one hand and government on the other. And who can we maybe trust more with it? And who represents more of a threat to our right to privacy? That's very interesting. I think um, it would be difficult for me to say, you know, who, where is the threat coming from? Is it coming from government? Is it coming from from corporations. I think it's, you know, that that's maybe not really an answerable question at this point in time, because I think increasingly the two are intertwined. Um, and one of the things that concerns about data and, and the devices increasingly that we're, we're giving up our data all the time to apps, we're signing off on terms and conditions that are, um, that we don't understand that are not, that are not made for us to understand them. I mean, they are we don't know where that data is going. There is a trade in, in data. There are data brokers. There are um, companies who uh, monetize this data, who use it to draw, uh, to, to make their own profit. And one might say, okay, that's fine. I like Facebook. I like it to be free. So I'm happy to give up data about my, who I am, what I like, who I talk to, and so on. Except the problem is that increasingly you're finding that these data services and these services that collect your data are being rolled into areas of life that actually have a concrete impact on you. So there are a number of, for example, sort of property rental services, uh, real estate brokers, for example, that will require you to give access um, to see who your friends are on Facebook as a way of judging credit worthiness. This has been documented in the US. And it's being touted as an alternative way to assess the credit worthiness of people who don't have traditional lines of credit, for example, or don't have credit history. So why should I be judged as an individual on who I'm friends with on Facebook as to whether or not I'm going to pay my rent on time? And why is it that an algorithm, most of these algorithms that, that contribute to decision making are proprietary and not audited? And we so we don't know what goes into the black box of decision making when it comes to whether or not to uh, give credit to this person or not. So there's huge issues around the lack of transparency on how our data is collected and used and by whom. And it's difficult to see the ramifications of it because there hasn't been a lot of good research into it to show how that is actually affecting people in the various ways it has been and can be discriminatory. And with that point, a lot of these processes that you are researching are happening right now, today, and they're constantly changing with the technology And so it is hard to say, like, what will the future implications of this be? Because we're basically we're living in this age of this technological revolution and surveillance revolution. And so every new kind of service, every new kind of technology has a different vision for what the future of 
services and privacy should be. And they're completely contesting. Um, I don't want to mm-hmm. belabor my example too much, but like in Estonia, for instance, the government is trying to sort of advertise itself as a service for citizens. So essentially their vision of the world, they've explicitly said, is a future world where you know, countries are borderless, where essentially you can sign up as an e-resident of Estonia or an e-citizen of Estonia eventually. But the idea would be fundamentally to change the relationship between citizens and the government, because essentially you would have a system where governments are competing for citizens based on how well they can use their technology and their data on you to file services. That's fascinating. That's like a free market of citizens or, yeah, that's very... This is the weird tension I think we're seeing with technology. It's either on the one hand, there's this very utopian free concept and it's also very, what I would call, techno-libertarian. You know, it's, it's, there are a lot of yeah. deep concerns that we should be looking at here. And I think it definitely speaks to what Clara was saying, that government and business and corporations, they're not necessarily all that separate as we may hope. Well, and they're not always benign. So the question in all this, Clara, that you brought up is, you know, who is controlling this? You know, there's scapegoating has happened historically. There's been many examples of scapegoats in the United States history. You know, at one point it was the communists. Anyone who came out as gay at one point was fired from the federal government in the 1950s. And now we're seeing the scapegoating of Muslims today, even if it doesn't make sense from a national security perspective. So how is there a way is there a way to mitigate against the dangers of having such advanced surveillance mechanism from falling into corrupt hands who want to target those specific groups and could use this data to really effectively target those groups? Essentially, we we can't really rely on intelligence services to self-regulate. That's pretty Mm -hmm. clear. That's one of the legacies of the Edward Snowden files. And it's also just counterintuitive because Mm -hmm. more data, there will always be this sort of argument that we need more data in, in order to protect the country. However, what we need, I think, and what, what Privacy International argues is that we need to have systems of checks on those powers, and we need to have more transparency about how those powers are used. So we need to have public records of interception orders and how many were delivered, which isn't always the case in many countries. We need to be sure that the people that are signing off on interception are following the proper procedures and getting judicial authorization to do so. We also need to push back very much at this idea that we need to collect it all in order to filter through and find what we want. Mm. You see that in some of the files from Edward Snowden. Um, some of the key terms were master the internet or collect it all. So there is clearly that that is the mentality of at least the U.S. intelligence services and probably many intelligence services around the world. And I can give you examples. However, we need to push back at the idea that if you're looking for a needle in a haystack, you just need to put more hay on it. It's going to help you find the needle. That isn't necessarily true. If you want to sort of figure out who is going to howtomakeabomb.com, you don't need to be analyzing the internet connection records of everyone in the country, which is something that, at least the collection of those internet connection records is something that was authorized by the Investigatory Powers Act in this country, in the UK. And so instead, you need to be looking at who is what are the IP addresses that are visiting howtobuildabomb.com. So we need to be able to push back against that. We need to show that that mass collection has not resulted in in many cases at all. I think less than five instances, the intelligence services in this country have been able to actually mm-hmm. say that they were able to identify somebody from mass communications mm. collection, um, interception and collection. 
targeted surveillance, which is following the due process of law, following a an interception warrant, and on the basis of reasonable suspicion, whether it's from human intelligence sources or, or whatever other sources of intelligence have fed into that, is always going to remain the most effective way of, of actually keeping this country safe. And so one of the, the things that we need to do and what Privacy International is engaged in doing is to push back against this idea that if you have it all, you're somehow going to be better at stopping bad things from happening. I think central to this is the distinction between data and metadata. Could you maybe give us a rundown of you know what, what the difference is and how they're being used in different ways? So the concept of metadata as a separate thing from content, uh, metadata is things like when I make a call to Talia, metadata of that call is going to be the time I called her, my number, Talia's number, the length of that call, and the location of where we were. So basically, which base station is my mobile phone connecting to um, when I'm calling her and, and her location as well. That's metadata. Content is what did I say to Talia? Now, in different jurisdictions, including the US and the UK, the intelligence services have often argued that content is more valuable than metadata. And metadata has almost no value and, and, and therefore should not be subject to the same protections as call content. However, if I'm a journalist and I'm routinely calling the same number, you know, who's a source of mine, it doesn't matter what I've talked about. It's the fact of my having called them and the record of my having called them multiple times and in different, the you know, locations that suffices to establish that, that person is my source. So essentially, there was a case recently in the UK in a place called Darlington, where a very local journal called The Echo um, had gotten an inside scoop about racism in the police force. And once they published that story, the journalist in question got put under surveillance. Their, their source was uncovered by analysis of the, the phone call records of the journalist um, themselves. And that person was subsequently, you know, relieved of his duties. But you, you don't need to have the content in order to establish many things about metadata, which is why the collection of metadata and the retention of metadata is increasingly something that intelligence services globally are advocating for. So you have places like Colombia, which has a mandatory five-year retention of communications data, which is a huge, hugely long period of time and, and a period of time that has been challenged in Europe. One example that comes to my mind is if you use Google a lot, there's actually a place on Google you can go to to see essentially their profile of you, which tells mm -hmm. them what kind of ads to send you. And uh, this, same with Facebook. Yeah. yeah and this yeah. isn't super nefarious, but it, but based on like your searches alone, it can tell what age you are, it can tell what your interests are, it can tell what gender you have. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's incredible the amount of information you can get just by looking at shadows on the wall, essentially. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people don't think, of, or I don't like consciously think about, at least myself on a day-to-day -day basis, that like every search that you put in to things like Google or Facebook, even if the government's not collecting it, certainly the corporations are. And if that data is hacked or compromised, then that can have really frightening implications depending on who you are in society. Um, towards the end of this conversation, I'd like to just pick up on this theme of shock in the relation of the fight for the right to privacy and what we do find shocking in terms of the retention of our data. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen Citizen 4, but I think for me it showed that so much of the reaction to these conversations about the right to privacy is 
people not minding that the government's retaining a lot of their data because Mm -hmm. it's not seen as actively targeting them. It's just seen as keeping it in a library that they can then go back to. And people say, well, I have nothing to hide. So the fact that people aren't shocked by this is probably a lot of the reason why people aren't mobilised behind introducing these further protections. And so one fact that I found extremely shocking in one six-month period, DCHQ in the UK on its optic nerve program intercepted 1.8 million Yahoo video (sighs) chats. And of these video chats that the government now could have and see, 3 to 11% of them contained undesirable nudity, showing their nude body in which they thought would not be intercepted by someone. And then these communications were then run through facial recognition technology. So not only could the government have access to and see these, but this Privacy International report said that the government could then trace these people and their identities to their face. So this attitude of not being shocked by violations to privacy, when you come up against a fact like that and against the programmes that Claire was talking about, I mean, frankly, it's shocking. Mm-hmm. Well, this, and this brings up the, the point that you mentioned earlier that people say you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Well, you may not have something to hide, but you certainly have something to protect. And I think most of us would not agree to be giving out our email passwords to random passersby. We would also probably not, you know, want to be sharing our uh, sexy chats with other people, um, which is why, in part, this optic nerve program was so jarring and one of the ones that actually the public got most angry about from the, from the Snowden revelations. And so... This idea that, that that you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, you only really need to, to think about that a little bit to understand that actually you do have plenty of things that you don't want to be sharing with other people. And we need to retain the ability to have private spaces where we think about things, where we express our thoughts and desires, because that is such a central part of what it is to, to live in a democracy. And I think we only need to look at what's going on in the world around us, and particularly what's going on in, in the United States right now to see that there is no place that is quote unquote safe where you can just kind of trust that the government or the intelligence agencies are going to you know not abuse their powers because there's lots of anecdotal evidence that that actually has happened both in the US and the UK which most people would say oh you know I don't have anything to to hide so I'm not of interest no you may not be of interest but you might be chatting on Facebook to someone who might be chatting on Facebook to somebody who might have a some kind of a interest to the government are you okay with being caught up in that dragnet that's the kind of question that we try to get people to to think about Thank you for joining us for another episode of Declarations. We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode, so please tweet us at DeclarationsPod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast. Join us next episode where we'll be talking about reproductive rights. Thank you for tuning in to Declarations.